All right, today I'm talking to Alexi Monavel, who has a new book out called Changing Your Team from the Inside. Everything you need to know to build high-impact, sustainable teams. Alexi, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, John. So Alexi and I met about a year ago. We worked together very briefly, never in person. Although I have, I think, met you in person. Maybe I haven't. I don't know. Anyway, we worked together about a, a year ago. Briefly, I've kind of followed your work since then. I saw on LinkedIn that you had this book coming out. And I said, oh, can I read the book? Can we talk about it? You said yes, which is excellent. So tell us a little bit more about what you do at Red Hat and how you got into this particular line of work. Well, uh, this is, this is a, a really great question, and it could take me a long time to answer that question. I will try to keep it short. So I'm working uh, uh, in the uh, engineering leadership team uh, at Red Hat. My main focus is working on organization and management, helping teams to be more efficient and in a sustainable way. That's my main area of work. And I come to that starting as an engineer in uh, mechanical engineering and being passionate with computers, make the link between the two and starting companies, growing companies, working with large companies, small companies, doing consulting, working with the government and um, became passionate about open source and then working with Red Hat because Red Hat acquired one one of the companies I I was working with. And what is it that you're passionate about open source? The the, the main thing was... uh, all those people that are living thousand miles away from each other and that are able to create great things that are really solving their problems. And I was really passionate about that because, yeah, that's probably an interesting way to organize uh, people um, because, yeah, some people find their way to organize themselves to create something great. So looking at how they, they are working. And in fact, there's... There's really many different ways to work when you, you, you speak about open source projects, but that was the, the, the main interest. And open source, for anyone that is not in the, the know in terms of software, open source software is this idea of open development where everyone sees the source code, everyone can contribute. That's how I would put it in layman te- terms. Would you add anything there? Um, yeah, I, I think you, 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 uh, you have it. That's... Uh, you you are creating something for the common good, so anybody can use it, change it, contribute to it, and distribute it. So that yeah, this is really it. Are there any parts of open source that you find that are not so satisfying or attractive? <laughs> yeah, the, I, I think there's those kind of downsides that I will say are not are not really necessarily linked directly to open source. I think it's. Uh, Mainly people behaviors. And <laughs> so people are the common denominator. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, mainly that. Oh yeah, you you see that way of behaving on a mailing list or um, a way of behaving in your in your your review comments on 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 the, on the code that you are reviewing, and that is may maybe not really considerate for the other person and not as respectful as you would like that to be and so on. So that's really behaviors of, of people. But that's, that's not necessarily linked to open source. It's really behavior of people. Um, and it's visible in the software world because we are using electronic tools to, to communicate really. 
So what was your motivation for writing this book? It came from the idea that, to be, to, be, to be honest, at the beginning, I thought that a few years back, I thought that was really a book about uh, organization that was targeting managers or uh, targeting leaders that wanted to change things. And um, I started something around that and open source and agile and something around that. And, then, and it didn't work really well. So I changed the angle and see, yeah, you need to appoint someone to, to foster the change in your organization. You need a transformation manager. And I started that with that angle, and I realized that, no, it's, it will not work. Because even if you are doing that, it's not necessarily working. And we can see that all the change management efforts are unfortunately failing. Oh, not all of them, 70% of them, according to, to the, the, the different studies I've read. So, yeah, it's, it's really a problem because you know that you need to change, and unfortunately, you are not able to do it. And I, I realized that there was a lot of people in their teams that had that feeling of, we really need to change something. Can someone do something about it? And they were helpless waiting for others to do something. It could be the managers, it could be the, the, the head of the company, it could be other team members. Uh, and yeah, there was something wrong about that. If, they are, if we are all waiting for someone else to change, uh, it will never work. So I thought, yeah, I need to write something down about what you can do when you are a team member and what you can do to change the situation in which you are. So that, that was the, the, the main idea of the book. So would change from the outside, would that be the more traditional change management or reorganization? Or what would exactly that be? What's the opposite, I guess, of, of your approach? Yeah, that, that's exactly... You are telling people how they need to change, and you are telling them when. And, and it's not really working, because the first thing they will do is resist. Because we are really good at resisting, either <laughs> actively or passively. Because when we are told to do something, and we don't understand why, we don't necessarily want to do it, we are good at staying exactly the same. I like the section in, you talked about, you had a section in here on around visioning, which was this idea of imagining, um, I don't know if I use the word perfect, but I think of it, well, at least in my coaching work, I'll often have people kind of examine, or examine, I'll have people imagine a perfect future. And then we will work backwards to create that versus let's just, you know, iterate on what we have. So I guess what I wondered there is, there's a section later on in the book around retrospectives. Have you ever brought visioning into retrospectives? And if so, how did it work? Yeah, this is, this is interesting. The thing is, when you are working on the retrospective, you are looking at the past. You are looking in the mirror and you are looking at what was done. So there's no really vision in that part because at some point, when you are able to work with the different team members, you get to a shared understanding of what happened. So that's, that's not a vision. That's what really happened. But next, you are doing your retrospective to do something for the future. And sometimes it's really useful to say, okay, what, what is that future that we already want? And doing the visioning ex exercise at that stage is interesting because 
yep, you are saying, okay, in two years, that's what will be. And then you can go backward to say, okay, what needs to happen to make that vision a reality? So I think that's, that could be something that you can use in the retrospective, not necessarily in the, in the retrospective that you are doing every week or every two weeks with your, with your team, but when you are doing something that is more longer term and when you want to really change something that will impact the future six months from now or, or, or more, more than that. Ah, that's a great distinction. And so, by the way, so so again, people not in the software business, a retrospective is often used in agile software development where at the end of a given iteration or sprint, the team takes stock of typically what went well, what didn't go well, what we might want to keep doing, what we might want to stop doing. And then you take that information to make the next iteration better than the last one. But it's, and I left. I love this part. You you wrote, regardless. I'm not sure if you were quoting from someone else or, but it was kind of the tone of the retrospective, which I haven't always seen, and I thought was a great way would be a great way to set up a retrospective. And he wrote, quote, regardless of what we discover, we understand and truly believe that everyone did the best job they could, given what they knew at the time, their skills and abilities, the resources available, and the situation at hand. Which I love about that is kind of assuming good intent or assuming that everyone was doing the best they could. Yeah, it's it's a it's a quote from from someone else, uh, and it's um it's the well, what is called uh, the the prime directive, and I think that's it's it's really important to have that. Yeah, to to foster that mindset if you want to do something about a situation, and that it, if you want to go over the the unfortunately classic blame game that you can see in some in some situation where people are only good at blaming each other about something and you are making no progress at all. What have you done in situations with retrospectives where there's lots of excitement about, you know, maybe rehashing the past and, you know, other people's failings <laughs> and then talking about, yeah, this is what we're going to do differently, but then actually implementing those improvements. I've seen, I have seen that fall down more times than I've seen it succeed. Is there a particular technique that you have that actually makes it work? Yeah, really, really good point. And um, that's, that's the part that can be frustrate, frustrating with, with retrospective. And I've seen that with, with some teams when you, you organize a retrospective, as you've said, there's a lot of energy about what we should do to change. And even what we will do to, to be able to change the way we are working. And then when we start to work again, we are working. We are not working on how to change how we were. And then the next retrospective come in. And yes, we, we could just say, oh, that was the action from last the last retrospective. Yes. <laughs> and unfortunately, we did nothing. So maybe we can do all the same actions or maybe we can just forget about it. And that's really frustrating. And the, the reason is we have a tendency to classify those actions are secondary compared to the real work that we are doing. And if we are doing that, we will never do that. So I think all those actions that are meant to improve the way you are working needs to be put in your work. That needs to be actions that will be handled by people in the team and with that's their responsibility to deliver on on 
that. And that's that's now part of their work to do that. And it's really important that improvement actions are really part of their work and tracked as, as so. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, let's say we look at the, the way uh, the team is working and we realize that there's a lack of synchronization between people. And at some point, in the retrospective, we decide that, okay, we need a, a daily synchronization um, with the people. And we say, oh, yeah, we will now meet every day uh, for short synchronization so we are sure we are all on the, on the right track. Okay, that's a good action. If nobody in the team is there to implement it, the next day there will be no meeting. Mm. And the next day there will be no meeting. And the next day there will be, and so on. If you say, okay, that's a good action and uh, we won't really, we are committed to do it. And please, one team member will be in charge to make it happen. Schedule the meeting, call everybody to uh, be sure that everybody's on time and to understand why they are not and, and so on and so on. He will have that responsibility. He or she will have that responsibility to, to make it happen. So it's a simple one. Uh, but if you are not putting someone in charge of having it, people can forget about it. You just solved years of frustration for me right there. <laughs> I can't tell you how many. Yeah, I at a certain point as a program manager, I pretty much gave up on retrospectives because I never, I never saw them work. And I'm seeing now that, yes, if I... Oh, that would have been one of those pointy program manager questions too. As you're going, I can totally see this now. As you're going through the process and someone says, yeah, we really need to have this stand up. The next question would be, and who will be the owner of that process? Yeah. And I can just see as a team saying, well, if we don't have an owner that's going to own this, then we're not going to sign up for it. Versus all these, yeah, my retrospectives were so aspirational and little to nothing came from them. Yeah, there's a, a, another way that I found really effective was to have checklists. That's, that sounds weird. Yeah, you, you say, okay, we all are grown-ups. We all know how to work, <laughs> and we don't need a, 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 a reminder about all the things we need to do. And in fact, I found that really useful to say, okay, that's the checklist for a meeting. That's the checklist for that weekly meeting that you have and you have a checklist everybody knows that there's a checklist everybody can see the checklist and we are going through the checklist so when we say okay at the beginning of the meeting to to be able to to remind why we are working in fact we have a checklist and the first item on the checklist is review our goals and so we will display our goals and we will review the goals and we have one or two or maybe three objectives and we we have the results that are for each objective that are helping us to, to, to stay on track, and we review that. And it's focused the attention on what we are trying to achieve. This is really good. Review the goals. But if you don't have a checklist, you will not do it, because there's always a, new, a urgent issue that everybody wants to discuss. And then you start the discussion, and you forget about it, and it's gone. Or review the action from the previous meetings, or things like that. Right, and right. If you have a checklist, it's working. Yeah, and, I, and also the owner too, because yeah, because what would happen was we would say, okay, we're going to do this one thing, and then I would start to push for it at each subsequent meeting, and then over time it would fall off the list, or people would just really resist it, or they would just wouldn't do it, or they wouldn't want to do it. 
And it, yeah, it's all back to the owner or it being on the list. I love that. Yeah, if, if it's on the list, you you, you nearly don't need an uh, owner because yeah, it's the responsibility of the whole team. Mm. So if the team decides to put it on the list, it became an item on the list, and you can call each other on 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 your bad behavior if you are not following the list. Right, right. So we agreed to put it on the list. We're not doing it. Now, what do we as a team want to do? Yeah. You talk a lot about games and different activities in your book. How do you get past the naysayers and the eye rollers and the people that just, you know, they're like, you know, we've all been to these things, you know, where the facilitator's like, okay, now we're going to do this activity. And people are like, ugh. What are your secrets for engaging people and getting people participating as fast as possible? This is really an interesting point because we all think that it's really difficult to engage people in all that fluffy stuff about uh, <laughs> yeah, just, just, just considering that we are human. And we all want to do the real work, the art stuff, the technical work that we are here to do. And we don't want to consider us as human beings. I was also in that trouble. I was even not calling those activities games for a long time because I've said, oh, yeah, that's, we are serious. We don't want to play games. In company. I was <laughs> trying to say it's a serious game or it's a simulation. Or it's, and you can call it whatever you want. It's still games. You are in a safe space for a certain amount of time and you can risk things. And you will learn a lot about others. So, in fact, it's a game. The cool thing is when you really believe it will have a benefit, when you start saying, okay, we will do that now, people will follow. Even if some of them are not totally convinced, if you choose your game carefully, they will be convinced at the end. Not at the end of the game. They will be convinced at the end of the meeting, for example. Because they will recognize that the level of energy the, the positivity that really gets things done is there because of what happened in the, in the meeting. So they will, at the end, be convinced that it was a good investment. And sometimes it, it takes time, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's working. So a key thing that I hear there is, is leadership. You as a facilitator really leading and really having confidence that what you're about to do will work. Yes. It's, you, you, need, you need to believe in it. <laughs> yeah, because if you just show up and say, well, let's try this silly exercise that I think might possibly help us. <laughs> yeah, nobody's going to really want to follow along. Yeah. And sometimes some people really want to know why we are doing this. And uh, the, the why is really difficult to explain because sometimes you, you are doing that game because you want people to discover that some of their behavior are toxic, for example, or the way they are doing things is not the right way. But you cannot explain why. Because if you are saying that, basically you will not have a game, you will not even have a meeting. Because you cannot tell people, okay, I think your behavior is toxic. So let's demonstrate that with a game. That, that will not really work. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So, but yeah, you can use that those activities to make people realize that, oh, maybe they can approach a conversation in a different way and it will it will really work better of all the different 
process, I'm not sure quite how to phrase this, but so in your book, you talked about, you know, different teams, different processes, different companies. What are some of your favorite challenges that you overcome, overcame or have overcome and why? There, there's several. I think there's, there, there's always a tension when um, people really want to achieve something and, and then they, they don't know how they will do it. And they really want to do it. But in fact, nearly they think that it will not work. It will not be possible. And that, that happens a lot of, lot of time that you, know, you, you, you really want to do that. You have that challenge. Now everybody agrees. And oh, unfortunately, it's too short. Or you don't have enough resources. Or there's other things that you don't have to make it happen. And working with teams in that situation is always interesting because they really want to do something. They just don't know if it's possible. And moving from it's not necessarily possible to, yep, yeah, we can do it. And in fact, yes, we are doing it. Uh, it it's, it's really fascinating and it's really energizing because, yeah, you have, you have that group of people that is able to do something. And yeah, this is really cool. What's the largest team or organization that you have helped change? Like how many people? I never think about this. And if you think at a large scale, uh, probably Red Hat is already large. Um, and you, you cannot really work with all the people in the company. And when I was working for the government, you are not working with all the civil servants. You are only working with a few of them. And you hope that working with the, the small group will influence the larger group and so on. And it's always like that. So even we, you, when you say, oh, I worked with that product team, it's 300 people, or I worked with engineering within what it's probably uh, thousands of people, you are not working with all of them. So you, you are only able to influence the people that are near you, and it's so usually small group of people. It's not really large. So what's the upper limit that works effectively in a, in a, in a large scale change environment where, of, of the, your immediate working group? I think the, the upper limit is uh, with who you are working. That's a, the, the limit is the influence of the, the people in the organization. So if you are working with the, the corporate leadership team, that's a small team. That's a small group of people. That's maybe 10 people. And you will influence the, the larger company and you will influence even the partners of the company or the customers of the company and so on. Um, so your, your influence could be really large because the people you are working with and their position, uh, they are really influential. So your, your upper limit is with who you are working with. If you are working with a small team that is delivering uh, a service or a product, um, that's a small team of maybe five or five or, or, or nine people, and you, you will influence that team and probably the other teams that are around that team and so on. What is, your, what is the success percentage or success rate that you see in terms of changing teams? <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it depends when, uh, if I'm really uh, in a good mood or in a bad mood. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I can. Yeah, I mean, I'll cut to. I'll I'll out myself here and say that I'm. I have not seen it happen positively. I've seen it happen less than I've seen it succeed. And so I'm wondering if, given all your experience, you've seen something different. The the thing is, we we are, and I am, probably demanding a lot from myself and others on, on that. So. When we are working on improving something, it's usually easy to say, oh, we are not yet at my vision. So we are failing. Mm. We are not, the change is not enough. And it's difficult to recognize that, yeah, we made some progress in that journey. And, and yeah, it's working. What I would call a failure is when you implement some changes, it seems it's working. And I've seen that when I was working as a consultant, working with companies. And you, you work with a, a team for, for a few, maybe a few weeks. You implement some changes. It's working. The team is making progress. Then you leave. And when you come back a few weeks back to, to see how it's working, the team is back to his old behavior. And all the changes that have been implemented implemented are are gone and this is a this is a failure and it happens from time to time and i think it's because people don't see the value of the their their new behavior and sometimes it's hard to to persist when you don't see why uh, and you don't see the positive impact on of, of what you are doing so I hear I hear an important thing there in there too is which is celebrate the small wins versus yeah. we yeah that's oh that's that's a good uh, challenge back to me yeah so in terms of making it a binary yes we succeeded or no we didn't it's seeing those things yeah what about a situation where there's there's not a specific leader like in other words you you know you mentioned you know people are not believing that it can change that my next question there was gonna be like well whose responsibility is that sometimes there's kind of a change agent a change agent that's assigned to a team but oftentimes there's not it's just you know management just kind of says hey guy hey hey guys and girls go fix this <laughs> yeah and uh, <laughs> and it, and even if you if if you're you, Okay, you, if you if you if say, oh, okay, yeah, there's a manager here uh, who wants that to change. Um, yeah, maybe you can do it. But even with that that support, in a way, it's not necessarily easy to do it. And let's say you don't even have that. You don't even have that support. Whose responsibility it is? And I think we are much more influential than we think. And that's, that's where we need to start. Uh, in fact, it's the responsibility of each individual to change things. And you can do it. And it sounds really weird because we say, okay, uh, okay, you can do it. It's, uh, it's nearly what you will find on T-shirts or things <laughs> like that. And yeah. Oh, but how, okay, how can I do it? And uh, in fact, looking for how you can change things is much more efic- efficient. So yes, you can do it, and your actions 
are really influential on other people. And even your mindset is really influential on all other people. And sometimes you just need to ask a few questions. Not confrontational questions like, why are you doing that? But more, how can we do that? Or even, how can I do that? It's much more efficient because suddenly when you're asking how something, um, people try to find a solution for you. And if they try to find a solution, then you are making progress. We are making progress as a team. When borrowing from what you said a little bit earlier, also looking for small things to change, believing that they can lead to bigger things versus saying, well, I can't fix this whole big thing, so why bother? Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned Lencioni, Patrick Lencioni's Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and if you're not familiar with that book, here they are real quick. Absence of trust, fear of conflict, lack of commitment, avoidance of accountability, inattention to results. As I thought about these, I wondered what unique approaches or techniques you've taken with remote teams. So you told some stories in the book about teams working together in person, having meetings, you know, breaking through some of these things. But what would you say to a team that's geographically dispersed, they're not able to meet in person regularly, and they have one or more of these dysfunctions that's really holding them back. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's 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 really difficult and challenging. Uh, and I worked with a, a lot of uh, ge- geographically dispersed teams. The first thing I would say is get to know each other, and to be able to get to know each other, you need to you need probably to to meet in person. So it's it's a little bit contradictory to your yeah, you have a team of people <laughs> that are all over the globe and the first thing you need to do is get together. But if you can't do that, okay, then you need to admit that you will have to find ways to get to know each other. And remotely it's quite hard. And there's a lot of different things that you can do to start to get to know each other. And I've seen things that um, yeah, you are you are bringing things for a, a show and tell, for example. Oh, yeah, small exercise. Yep. Next meeting, let's uh, let's work on that. And for the the first minutes of the meeting, uh, we will have a round table and we will have a show, a show and tell. So bring a, bring an object, bring something that you want to show to the others in the team and explain why you choose that object. Uh, that could be uh, glasses. I've seen someone bring glasses, sunglasses. And I was looking at that to say, okay, uh, sunglasses, what's that? And in fact, it was really specific sunglasses because it was sunglasses that that person was using to um, uh, pilot plane. And suddenly it becomes really more interesting because, yeah, that was not all those sunglasses. And in fact, the sunglasses are nothing interesting. But being a pilot, becoming a pilot, that was really uh, interesting. So the show and tell is could be the, the first thing. And and making progress on that, uh, there's all, also teams that are making progress because they are doing things uh, with each other. That's uh, uh, what we call pair programming, for example, and uh, it's easier to be done when you are in the same room, but now with the technology that we have, you can share your screen and uh, you can work with uh, each other to do something. And if you are not in the, the software development business, 
try to write a difficult letter or a difficult desk, text using um, a shared document and having the audio on and working with each other to try to craft a, a, a good document. And it's really powerful. And when you work with each other, you get to know better and you get to understand better why the people are using those kind of words or the approach they have and so on. And you build uh, what is really important for a team. You get to know each other, you start caring a little bit more about each other, and you are building trust. So even if you are not in person, you can have those kind of activities that will help uh, the team becoming a team, not a group of individuals uh, working on their own. Well, it sounds like a key aspect to that is getting really personal. So I am a pilot or I'm learning to be a pilot and here's what's involved. Yep. Oh, and, and it can be a lot of different things. It could be because you care about uh, um, your family or you care about the, the community you are involved in. You care about the environment. You care. You start to share more than what makes you uh, a, a whole human. And it's not only the, your role in the team or your function at the company or things like that. It's a little bit more. And people are not necessarily comfortable with that because it makes them vulnerable. You need to admit that you are failing at something. I've seen a team member explaining that uh, he had real difficulties with one of his uh, uh, teenage uh, 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 children. And... Um, and it, 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 it was really painful to hear. Um, and he, he was a manager. And you are expecting a manager to be very really great at doing things and leading teams and organizing everything and working with people. And when you are failing with your kid, you don't necessarily want to share that. But it was really interesting to hear from that because it explained a few things about his behavior. And in a way, find some support in the team to help working with his uh, teenager. Because one of the other team members said, oh, yeah, by the way, I have a kid the same age uh, who is really passionate about uh, it was a bike, uh, bike riding and so on. Or maybe we can meet and maybe they, let's see what, what they are doing with each other. And those guys really help each other. Uh, and they, they became both really passionate about biking. So that was really cool. Wow. And that solved a lot of issues. So I'm not saying that you will find help on every things within your teams, but being more vulnerable will help the other understand how you what what you are going through. And and sometimes they will be able to help you even. Yeah, that's beautiful. It reminds me of something I've often encouraged people to do, which is to look for excuses to have real-time conversations with people. So in today's online virtual work world where you can just chat at someone on Slack or IRC or whatever you're using these days, I will often encourage people, instead of just simply asking that question in the chat, have a video call, have a phone call. Like, in other words, yes, you could get your answer that way, but, but taking a small opening, like, I need an answer to this problem, to have a real conversation can also be a way of starting to get to know other people in a remote environment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you will interrupt them. And that's, that's uh, usually the, the good excuse that we have to not do that. 
yes not <laughs> go to see someone oh yeah i will interrupt that person yes this is true and if you're already worried about that uh, maybe you need to define team agreements that makes the, the interruption uh, period define the interruption period yes i don't want to be interrupted during that period but yes you can you can ping me during that period and the team can decide that and then it becomes easier because you know yeah we can chat about this and it's okay you're mentioning empathy there as well like this interaction between these two people they now had more empathy for each other you in your book you have a the uh called the empathy map where it's the person's head uh yeah what's called the empathy map have you used that a lot i had seen that in a i think it was game storming by dave gray and i used it once and it sort of worked sort of didn't with the team i was doing it with have you seen success with that yes it's it's always interesting to use it because it helps people to share what they all know and unfortunately, they don't know the same thing. <laughs> that's why it's really successful. And I, I worked with, with one team that were, they were always referring to the users of the product. Those users. <laughs> and uh, it was always interesting that I was unable to understand who were the users of the product. And I thought I was smart enough to understand that. But uh, it, each time they were referring to the users and why they were doing but where they were, where they wanted to build some features and so on in their product. Uh, and I was not able to figure out who were the, the, those users. And we used the empathy map to try to understand who were the users. And they didn't want to do that at the beginning. And they started to work on that. And at some point, they said, okay, but you, we are not talking about the same person. And, and suddenly, we had two kinds of users. And then, oh, but we had another person that was another stakeholder that was really important in the process and in the decision process and who was caring about other features. And suddenly they understood that yeah, that group of product managers were managing a big product, but they were targeting different kind of people. And we had uncovered the need to define different personas and there will be features that will target some of those different personas. And it was really powerful. Yeah, I remember the first time. In fact, I think I saw... So So Dave Gray, who is part of a company called Explain, they have an office, I think, headquarters here in Portland, Oregon. I was at a free event they do monthly. And I remember the first time I saw this, it blew my mind. So the, the empathy map for people that aren't familiar with it, it's the picture of a head. And so you have the eyes, the mouth, the ears, the head, and and the the... The questions that this that you're trying to answer for each aspect of this picture is what does this person, so if it's a user, what do they see? What do they hear? What are they thinking? Uh, what are they experiencing? What are some of the other ones? Yeah. What are they saying about your, yes. your product? Yes. And yeah. What are they hearing? That could be from you or for, from others. Uh, how do they think? How they are doing things? Or what do they think? And um, then, and suddenly, yeah, yes, you you need to think about it because uh, what do they say? Apart from nothing, you need to work a little bit in the team. And suddenly, there's people that are saying things that are interesting. Well, and it gives you almost like a three dimensional avatar, 
there's just kind of the you know you have to create these avatars of sally and harry and this is what they do and this is who they are and this is what they like but yeah there was a three-dimensional aspect that came out of doing this that i just like completely blew me away i was like wow this is a completely different way to figure out what people really need and, and what they want you also will be able to uncover that you don't know yes yeah, so you're making a lot of assumptions <laughs> yeah and suddenly you realize that okay as a team in fact we don't really know so we need to we need to work on that and we need to go to see real people to understand how they how they are experiencing things on people that are working on user experience and so on know that perfectly well but it's not enough you need other people to really feel that understand that and experience the, the real experience of users if you are building a product or other people in a, if you are building something else or working on something else so watching you from afar at red hat and everything i've ever seen and read about you your work has been in agile software development. How, do you ever do anything that's, and so I'll just, my question is, do you do anything in the waterfall space or in waterfall development? And do you see a place for that? And so for people that are like, John, what are you talking about? What's waterfall? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I explained iterative development before, which is short iterations, two weeks, three weeks, a month. Um, and then you release something as opposed to waterfall, which is more traditional software development, where you might have a very long planning phase, and then you would start developing. And then once developing is done, then you do testing. So it's very gated. You don't start one activity until the previous activity has ended. Is there a place for waterfall? And do you do any waterfall software development to help with people? <laughs> this is a really good question. And we are back to the the a sort of binary way of seeing the world. And, um, <laughs> I think that's a weakness of mine. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we are all, in a way, doing that every time when we try to label, label things and, uh, and we tend to try to describe things as black and white because it's, it's easier. It's either black or white, but we know that it's not working. When you are uh, looking at all the, the white paintings uh, to try to paint your walls in white uh, and you try to choose the paintings, you can see that there's already uh, 15 different whites uh, and now you need to choose. And I'm not, I'm just talking about the white, but if you are looking at all the colors, there will be an infinite amount of choices. And everything is this way. It's not waterfall and, uh, or agile or something. Uh, and you can have frameworks that are way to describe a way of working, and you will need to implement that framework and to adopt that and to adapt that in your context. And you need to accept that it will evolve. And in fact, I, I worked with companies that were saying that they are they have a really well established waterfall model, but they were not using waterfall, but already a well established process. That, we are, that was going from the inception of an ID and then you have a milestone and so on. And, and then at the end, you had a successful product. And all that was exactly a well-defined waterfall model. But when you were looking at how people were working, they were unable to work in those phases because, of course, they were 
working in the inception of the product, the inception of the ideas, and then they had that milestone, they had the validation to go in the next phase. And in the next phase, they were uncovering that uh, they were wrong on some of the assumption in the previous phase. So they were modifying things discreetly without telling anybody. And they were changing it for the next phase and so on. So, in fact, they were not respecting their own process because they were changing things. They were adjusting things. Unfortunately, when they were working with other teams in charge of one specific phase, that's where the, the, the troubles were really coming because suddenly when you need to change something, if you need to go back to the, the start of the process, it can take a long time. And uh, the thing is, you, if it's different teams managed by different people, you tend also to blame the people that prepare the work before you, you, you take over. And mm-hmm. so waterfall can lead to have more end over on divisive behavior in the, in the organization. But it's not, it's, it's not all only, yeah, it's, it's usually not followed as it's defined. So it's usually already adapted and sometimes not, not so well and not so, it's not really shared. Would you say there are products where a more pure waterfall process makes sense? I don't think it makes sense. It's really difficult to have activities that are really isolated from each other. Um, and it's difficult to plan everything up front. And to have no changes to be made uh, after afterward. So I think it's uh, it's really better to try to say, okay, yes, we let's say we want to build that product. We want to build that car. And to build that car, we need probably to design the car at some point. And so, yes, you need to fix some aspects of your uh, development up front. You want to, to build a car that will have uh, one, two, three, four seats, seats, and so on. You want to build a car that is able to reach uh, a certain speed, uh, certain autonomy, certain. You need to fix some of the constraints up front. And that will probably not change because if you know that you are changing that, that will impact all the rest. So you need to define certain things. And those things will probably not change. Or maybe they will, but then you will know that it will affect other other aspects. But you cannot define that for 18 months of work, all the aspects of the work. So you need to do that iteratively. You need to say, okay, that's our first goal is to have that by during that period of time. And if the constraint is the time, then you need to discuss what can what can be done during that period of time and you are working that with the team you are working that with the people that are in charge of doing the work that cannot be done outside of that so you you want to have that uh, ability to adjust your plan uh, regularly and to reflect on what you are doing because it's not only um the capacity to adapt, it's also the capacity to manage risk. When you have a big planning up front, 
you it's really difficult to handle the risk because you are not able to adjust to what will happen. And you tend to think that if you are not respecting the plan, that you are failing. And people tend to react by explaining that everything is green until it's too late to hide the, the disaster. Mm-hmm. So the, the adaptability to the, the capacity to adapt, to adjust your behavior will help you to manage the risk. And I don't think there's the, the waterfall development really exists. We are not really doing it the way we are saying we are doing it. You mentioned Ryan Holiday's book, Ego is the Enemy. How does that, how does the ego and how did your reading of that book influence your perspective on creating change from the inside? We said that's, that's probably exactly the, when I'm saying that waterfall development, for example, does not exist or other uh, other approach to manage project does not really exist. I will hurt people that think it is that think it exists, that are people that are certified with some uh, uh, methodology and that are respected for their, their work as uh, project management, project managers, and handling the, the work on, on a waterfall basis. And if they are doing the same about what I'm doing, I will probably be hurt on that. If I can recognize my feelings about that and work on that, I will probably be a, have a better answers and a better discussion with them because I will not feel attacked by what, what they are saying. And I will say, okay, why is he saying that? Why for him, it seems not to work at all. Why, 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 it's, why so? And I will be able to ask questions, not why questions that are really confrontational. Why are you saying that? Uh, but questions to inquire on to try to understand what, what people are saying. But your own ego is your own enemy because, yep, you you are in the way of your own progress. If you are not able to recognize that, yeah, you, you can differentiate what you are doing from who you are, what defines you as a person. That's beautiful. So self-awareness is really a very key aspect of initiating change. Yes. We know that, and we, we can see the, those nice quotes about being the change you want <laughs> to see in the world. And, but yeah, it's difficult to do. And, and at the same time, it's really easy because you can experiment uh, starting now. And, and, and you will see the impact. You need to choose carefully what, you, what is your next experimentation. But you can see that your own mindset will affect people. And you know that. So, yeah. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that book. I recently finished reading it myself, and it was it was very good, very thought-provoking. You mentioned a number of, I think I lost count of the number of books that you reference in your book and that influence your thinking and your work. If you were to recommend the top two or three to people to read, what would they be? <laughs> it's really hard. Uh, it's it's really hard because it depends on what you what you want to achieve. But there's a few a few books that can help you on your on your journey. And uh, the things that that really help 
uh, I think the, the novel are really helping. Um, something like the goal from, um, uh, I, I don't remember the, the name, but the, uh, the book, The Goal, is, is interesting because it's a novel. And you can see the person who is having trouble in his factory and who will find help from uh, other people and that will progress on his journey to transform things. And it's really interesting because you can you can picture yourself in the same situation or you can identify yourself and and then you can transpose that to your world. So I really love novels like The Goal. You mentioned before the, the Five Dysfunction of a Team. Those kind of books are, are really useful for that. Um, there's one book that I like also that helps you find uh, find yourself a little bit more is a search inside yourself. Um, it's a, in, in an interesting, uh, a really interesting book. And there's a there's one thing that is said in the book that is a, a really simple experiment that you can make. And the author said that what he is doing when he, he met someone, when he crossed someone in the street or in the corridor, um, when he first interacts with someone, the first thing he said to himself is, I want that person to be happy. And it's really interesting and really powerful to do that. And you can experiment that without saying that to anybody. And you're just doing it for one day or for one week. And you will see the impact. So those kind of small things are interesting. And there's a, there's a lot more in that search inside yourself. I love No, you know, it's funny. I bought that book a few years ago. I've never read it. Now I'm, it's, it's moving higher up on my list. <laughs> Maybe we should cool. dis- maybe we should discuss it. <laughs> <laughs> but I love yeah. that idea. I love that idea of approaching people from the from the just a an inside mindset of how could I make this person happy? Like I'm thinking after we're done talking here, I'm going to a doctor's appointment. Yeah, what would it look like just to walk up to the person that you check in with and just think, how could I make this person happy? Yeah, it changes everything. Yeah, and when you say to yourself, you say, I should. I want that person to be happy, or you can say, uh, Alexi wants that person to be happy, and it will have an impact on you. Yes. And, it, and it's visible from the outside. Yes. And, and it's, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. It's, it's really working. <laughs> well, no, and I can hear someone saying, Yes, John, but you cannot make someone happy. No, I can't. But it's a mindset thing, and it's a it's I don't know it's an energy thing. It's a, how am I approaching someone else? Can yeah, yeah, definitely. I love that. What is the biggest, or not biggest, but what are some things that you hope that people will do after reading your book? It's it's easy to read a book and have lots of great ideas and be inspired. But what what are things that you really hope people do as a result of reading this? Apart from sending me their reviews and giving me insights to improve the book. Uh, <laughs> I would, I would like them to, to be energized and to try to do one thing, to try to do one small change and to see what happens. And if they are able to start with one thing, I hope that will help them to go to the next thing and so on. So that would be really this. That's, that would be to start doing something. My last question was going to be if you had a challenge for people. That sounds like the challenge. Is there anything you would want to add to that? 
I want them to be happy. Uh, and that, that's, that's, that's really something important. And I would like them to approach other people with that same mindset. And uh, the challenge will be really this. Yes, start. Do something now. And invest in yourself. And even if it's only 15 minutes a day, it's already absolutely great because that you are moving, you are changing, you are doing something. And you probably already have 15 minutes in your day that you can use to invest on, on that change. I love it, which is totally different than sitting and saying, well, this is not going to change and it can't change until someone else does something. Because the only person we have control over is ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Very nice. Well, any other closing thoughts? Oh, um, no, a part of uh, that was really nice talking with you. And I hope that will help people to to to, to do something. And um, yeah, please uh, send me reviews about about the book. If you are reading it, I would be really happy to hear from you and, and to be able to to improve it from the for, for the next version of it. So where can people go to learn more about you and your work? The, the main point would be the, the website. Uh, it's alexis.monville.com. So it's a, it's a, it's a, a simple, simple one, and you, you will find a, a lot more resources here. Thank you. Thank you for, the, for chatting today with me, John. That was uh, absolutely great. Yes, yes, yes. And I'll also link to those things and any other things I discover and uh, find after our conversation as well. So thank you. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. Send your questions, ideas, or a simple hello to podcast at johnpolster.com. Want to stay up to date on new episodes and receive notifications of upcoming events? Register your email address at johnpolster.com slash updates. <laughs>